Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the August 27, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we're going to continue rethinking the plastic proposition with Nick Lapis. He's Director of Advocacy for Californians Against Waste. He'll take up the Senate Bill 54 and Assembly Bill 1080, also known as the Circular Economy and Plastic Pollution Act. In the second segment, Dr. Brian Cummings, Professor and Vice Chair for Research at Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at UCI School of Medicine, will speak truth to power. A powerful publishing house, Elsevier, about open access to all that research academics do. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Nick Lapis, Director of Advocacy for Californians Against Waste. We're mainly going to focus on California Senate Bill 54, Assembly Bill 1080, the Circular Economy and Plastic Pollution Act. Since joining Californians Against Waste, Nick has led several campaigns to enact nation-leading waste reduction legislation and regulatory action in California, in addition to coordinating California Against Waste's overall advocacy strategy, Nick leads the organization's efforts to reduce the impacts of climate change and recover organic wastes. He also engages in policy development and coalition building, representing Californians Against Waste on a variety of boards, committees, work groups, and coalitions. We'll talk about some of those in this intervening interview together. Before joining Californians Against Waste, Nick Lapis interned at the Coalition for Clean Air and California State Parks and worked on ecological restoration and youth leadership development through several positions at the Golden Gate National Parks. Nick completed his Bachelor's of Science in Environmental Biology and Management with minors in Environmental Policy and Planning and Political Science at UC Davis. Nick joins me. Nick comes to us today up from Sacramento, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having me, Claudia. Well, thank you, and welcome to Ask a Leader. So why don't we start with just a little history of Californians Against Waste and your current roles and priorities. They're part lobbying, part public education. Yeah, so Californians Against Waste is a nonprofit environmental organization based in Sacramento. We've been around for 42 years now really originally focused around passing a bottle deposit in California. So the nickel or, or dime that you pay when you uh, buy beverages that you can redeem when you recycle them. That campaign was successful, and the organization has since then moved on to working on a lot of other environmental issues around waste and recycling. So everything from electronic waste to composting and organics, and definitely a lot in the plastic waste realm as well. Um, most of what we do is we develop policies and we try to find coalitions to help pass these policies in the state legislature, but also at the different regulatory agencies. And 
I guess what I found interesting with the last round of setting policy that the California state legislature, when they adopted the, it's, I mean, there's certainly some exemptions around, but the discontinuation of the single-use plastic bag, I noticed that the earth did not come to a standstill when we transitioned on that January 1st day a couple of years ago. So that's, that's lesson learned is we can all be fearless about setting mandates, correct? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the, the fear-mongering by the industry is really ridiculous. Uh, you know, to the extent that there are real issues to address in some of these bills, we're happy to go through them. But the the sense, like you said, that the world's going to come to an end is just ridiculous. Um, the legislation we're working on now to transition packaging to recyclable and compostable alternatives, uh, the industry has ads that they're running that claim that we're banning 70% of groceries, which is just ludicrous. And, you know, you mentioned the plastic bag ban. That's been very effective. We've seen a huge drop-off in bags found in litter cleanups and beach cleanups. You um, have. We have, yeah. Went from one of the most common items to almost never found in beach cleanups. And I guess there, the, you could say the so-called ripple effect was for where there were exemptions in plastic bags. I imagine behavior having changed somewhat significantly meant a reduction where plastic single-use bags were allowed, but there had been acculturation for people to start bringing their reusable bags to those areas that were exempted. Yeah, I believe so. I mean, we don't have hard data on that, but it, it does appear to be the case. So when we're talking about reuse and all that, I guess I want to know the extent to which Californians against waste attend to the waste stream in the production of, not at the tail end of it, the consumption. Is that something that you put in your sort of formula for the externalities of our disposable stuff? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think our formula is the same formula that most of your listeners learned in elementary school, which is uh, reduce, reuse, recycle. And we really cannot forget the reduce and reuse part of that. So policies like the plastic bag ban are you know, what we call source reduction policies um, to reduce waste at the source. But just generally speaking, I think the state of California is beginning to relook at the convenience culture of disposable items and this idea that you're going to be handed an item that was made from, you know, fossil fuels that have been uh, fracked or mined, right? Right. And that you're going to be handed that item and use it for 30 seconds to drink a, a beverage or to take your groceries out to the car. That's just ridiculous. And it's almost mind-boggling that we've come to expect that. Will you serve up my, it's my pet, my contribution to... Resource management linguistics is instead of single-use plastics, I, I brought this by a Greenpeace guest not that long ago, and I said, why don't we call it seconds-use plastics? Are you, are you in with that? <laughs> it's a great term. Um, you know, I, I try to <laughs> stick to terms that people I know. Uh, understand immediately. <laughs> but As somebody who works a lot in, in uh, sort of wonky policy areas, I actually try to go back to more common phrasing. But those wonks, though, they, they need that, you know, that yeah. kind no, of... No, but you're, you're, the point you're making is exactly right, that this is, uh, it's not just as a single use, it's that we use it 
for seconds before throwing it away. So another sort of pet concern of mine is, and I, I want to know if Californians Against Waste are taking up demonstrating to the public the volume of waste that we generate. It's so hard for us to gather in our imaginations how much waste we're generating if it's always carted away every ritualistic week, you know, in our bins. We have no concept of how much accumulation there is. Is there any part of demonstrating that in your sort of public education and your advocacy functions? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, something we like to say is that there is no away. Everything gets taken somewhere and the amounts sort of are staggering. We dispose of about 40 million tons of material every single year in California. And it's hard to even imagine what 40 million tons look it like. It is. Some of our partners and coalitions and other folks we work with have done several projects to help illustrate this. There have been artists who have done art projects, you know, to show the scale of our consumption. And then you have folks like um, Five Gyres and others who are working on identifying the owners, the brand owners of the waste, and holding them accountable specifically for how much they generate. Five Gyres, how do you spell that? It's five, number five and G-Y-R-E-S. Okay, good. I'll put that in and there. And Story and of Stuff and some other folks as well. So what are, who are some of the artists? Because I, I want to put them in play with, uh, you know, with my little Twitter sort of contributions, which are spare, but, you know, I try to place it when I really have something to say. So who are some artists that are, because I've been thinking of that as a perfect performance art kind of education tool. So who's doing this already? There, there are a few. Um, I, I will follow up maybe with some links that you oh, can share do. with your viewers or listeners. But there's actually art show somewhere in Southern California last week focused on, on this issue. So that there are quite a few artists. Well, I only have a few it. thousand places to look up, but I'll, I will definitely check it out. You're, you're intimating that it's probably not still in an installation we can see? I'm not sure. Somebody forwarded me a link last week, and I, I actually did not attend, but it looked really cool. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to find out more about that, too. So now we've got to get on to this legislative activity. If you could talk to us, Nick, about it's both Senate Bill 54 and the Assembly Bill 1080, and I really, I prize whoever was the one that did it, if it's Gonzalez or whomever else, it's labeled the Circular Economy and Plastic Pollution Act. What is it going to try to do in terms of goals and timelines and approaches? Yeah, we're really excited about this legislation. So it's one bill, the language is exactly the same, but it's in two different bill numbers, uh, which is a little unusual for the California legislature. But there was so much interest uh, among legislators in addressing plastic pollution that we ended up with authors in both houses that introduced bills. They're working together, and they have the same language. I believe they have something like 17 co-authors as well. And what the legislation will do is basically create a framework for reducing plastic waste and packaging and single-use items over time. So instead of banning a single product, it sets goals for a state agency to meet and the state agency, CalRecycle, will develop regulations to achieve those goals. 
if you think about it, that's sort of how we regulate air pollution, right? right. We, we have a Clean Air Act that sets goals for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and local air districts, and then they adopt regulations that are specific to what is the best available control technology for a cement kiln or whatever. And, and really, it's that kind of comprehensive approach is the only way we're going to make a sizable dent in the problem. Um, it's, you know, a lot of legislation is focused on individual products, and while that's been really important in terms of awareness building, actually moving the needle is going to require this bigger approach. To oversimplify a little bit, it requires that packaging for all the goods you buy be recyclable or compostable, and we mean really recyclable or compostable, meaning that it can actually be made into new products, and there are markets for it, um, not that we're just going to ship it overseas. And then it requires source reduction, so we don't have unnecessary packaging. So the poster child in my mind is always the huge plastic blister pack that has a, a tiny little item in it that you can't open, that you need to get your gardening shears to open. A power tool. Or a power tool. Because <laughs> they're, 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 it's worse than a paper cut, those plastic cuts. Definitely. And and a lot of times they're made out of unrecyclable plastic. And those are often made out of PVC, which is also incredibly toxic if it ends up in the environment or if it ends up going to an incinerator. And it's totally unnecessary. It doesn't serve a purpose for protecting the product. So I think that the easiest, lowest hanging fruit is getting rid of the unnecessary packaging, um, working on reuse systems, uh, working on more concentrated formulas of products. And then for, for the packaging that's left, let's switch to recyclable and compostable alternatives. So for those of you who've just joined in, my guest is Nick Lapis. He's Director of Advocacy for Californians Against Waste. And we are honing in on California's Senate Bill 54, Assembly Bill 1080, and setting goals and policies for reducing the plastic waste stream in in the title I want to I want to say this I, I bring it up in every other conversation I have no matter how social the setting is it's the label for the legislation is the circular economy and plastic pollution act so Nick could you talk to us about with whom you are collaborating in this effort in the California legislative arena yeah, I'm glad you asked because this is really a collaborative effort amongst a lot of different organizations. Uh, we've been working very closely with Oceana and Surfrider and Environment California and uh, Heal the Bay and a lot of organizations, uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, Audubon, California, the Sierra Club, the League of Conservation Voters, um, it's really been one of the most collaborative efforts I've ever seen around a really? organization. Really? Yeah. In addition to the environmental organizations, uh, there are faith groups that are supporting it. There are folks like the Monterey Bay Aquarium. It's just support has been all over the spectrum. Well, then there's also the Long Beach that, I mean, down here, the Museum of the Pacific, and they, they've touted, and actually I've had their, their uh, CEO on not that long ago. They had a brand new wing, and they're all about being exhaustive in all of the 
ways in which the climate crisis can be dealt with and I, I just I circled back with him twice said, can we just can we just consume less can you just agree to that you know so he he was willing but you've got that you've got one more ally that maybe isn't the museum of the the aquarium of the pacific might be another entity that you could get on board that's a big la basin sort of institution yeah and the the aquariums generally have been great leaders on plastic pollution issues and i think that people trust them in a way that they might not trust an advocacy organization um, because, you know, they come at it from a science perspective, not from a political perspective. Right. Well, and, and they are merchants. You know, if you're, they sell stuff it to, you know, keep their institutions going. So if they're merchants that, and a merchant is telling you to consume less, then that, that's a very powerful message, too. Yeah. We, we've also been fortunate to have a lot of labor support. We have the Teamsters in support, along with the service employees, um, the Communication Workers of America, the Longshoremen. And the, the reason we have so much labor support is that there's an opportunity to create a lot of jobs using these resources that we have been throwing away. And so it's really a, a no-brainer. So I want to give you a chance to talk to, we have representing the area where the station is located, is Assemblywoman Kati Petri-Norris and Senator John Morlock. How are they in participating in this legislative process currently? You know, I think that the staff for probably every legislator has been involved in talking to the authors of the bills. Um, I think there's a variety of, of positions that legislators have, but I think everybody has been engaged in trying to get a good policy. One of the bills, that the SB 54, which was a Senate bill, yes. actually got two Republican votes when it was on the Senate floor. So it's had bipartisan support. And, you know, frankly, it seems like everybody's engaged in terms of finding a solution that works, which isn't always the case on other legislation. So this feels altogether different from anything you've done in the name of it, resource management. It, it does, and I think it's just the, the public consciousness is so shocked by these images of the plastic in the ocean, the turtle with the, with the straw in its nose, the albatross full of bottle caps, you know, the cover of the National Geographic. I think it's just really hitting people on sort of a visceral level. Okay. So are there incentives uh, that you want to talk to in uh, reaching some of these goals? I, I mean, you talked about Im improving the jobs uh, in the you know, state economy, but are th other kinds of incentives to talk to, Nick? Yeah, so we really believe that this bill is what we call producer responsibility. Correct. Which means uh, the, the people who make the products have to be responsible for them at the end of their life. And... Ultimately, it's on those manufacturers to make sure that there are markets for the finished products, to make sure that they're closing the loop and buying back recycled content, to make sure that it's cost-effective to recycle the materials, to not use adhesives that are incompatible with recycling, etc. And so I really think that the incentives come in from the manufacturers to help them achieve the recycling rates they're going to have to achieve under these bills. So we've talked about who um, 
the legislative maneuvering. Where is the legislation? I, the, what I looked up was that the last amendments were as of, was it the end of May? There may have been a, yet more floor votes since May 22. Where is the legislation and where? <laughs> what are your guns, where are they pointed to, ke- to keep this moving to the finish line? Yeah, so the legislation is almost at the very end of the process. We're in the last three weeks of the legislative session. So most bills have to pass or not pass by September 13th. Otherwise, they become two-year bills and get punted to next year. So the bills are in their appropriations committees, in the Senate Appropriations Committee and the Assembly Appropriations Committee. They will be there until the end of the month. And then, assuming they get out of those committees, they will be subject to four votes in both houses. So AB 1080 will be voted on on the Senate floor, and SB 54 will be voted on on the Assembly floor. When you said end of the month, you're talking about the end of August? End of August. Okay, and then the end of the September 13th. 13th. And then the governor, well, we can kind of guess what's going to happen, what's the dynamic. He'd he go along with the the supermajority in his same party. But, I mean, is there, do you have any kind of, for our scoop here, just between you and me and my all our listeners, how many of them, whether uh, there's somebody in the governor's office that, that has some extra sort of add to all this or anything? You know, I, I, I won't pretend to be able to speak for the governor. But I will tell you that when he was mayor of San Francisco, right. he passed the country's first plastic bag ban. Right. And that was a really big deal. I mean, mm-hmm. that, now it's almost cliche, but at the time, it really took a lot of courage to do. Similarly, he passed the country's first mandatory recycling and composting policy when he was mayor. So he's really been a champion on a lot of these issues. He appointed Jared Blumenfeld to be the Secretary of Environmental Protection for the state. And uh, Secretary Blumenfeld has been a champion on recycling issues his whole career as well. So I feel like we have very strong leadership from the governor's office, even though they haven't been able to actually sign or veto any bills yet. Um, But we're really excited to work with them. So, Nick, what do you suggest constituents around the state do in these last laps? So we actually set up a website where you can look up your legislator and contact them directly. The website is org. Again, CA for California, org. Okay. So go to that website, enter your address, and it will give you the contact information for your legislator. Call them, let them know why it's important to you for them to support the bill. And then if you'd like to stay in touch with us, our website is org. And that's also our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, CAW Recycles. And since you mentioned CA, the one where we can, as voters, uh, check in on the progress of the legislation, CA must lead. So as a closing question, Nick, I wanted to find out is to what extent from where you are positioned, do you see that this is a template? It's getting attention in other state legislatures at this point. I think it's definitely a template. And we've heard from advocates in other states who want to introduce similar legislation. We're going to be very excited to work with them, give them the lessons learned that we've had, 
but generally California has always led the way on all sorts of environmental issues and we see this as an opportunity to lead on another environmental issue especially one that seems so insurmountable and so dire that it's going to take some pretty big action. So I guess one more point to add to this is that maybe do you see this as perhaps building on and creating additional momentum so we can really address this crisis in every sector, not just in waste reduction? I, I hope so. Yeah, it, in, in the same way that you said the plastic bag ban has inspired people to look at their uh, consumption of plastic bags and other uses, I'm hoping that this will lead to people re-examining their broader consumption as well. Okay. Well, Nick Lapis, I really appreciate your taking the time. I know you're really busy in these last weeks in this California legislative session. Thanks for being on Ask a Leader today. Thanks for having me on. Yes, you're welcome. My guest was Nick Lapis, Director of Advocacy for Californians Against Waste, mainly focusing on Senate Bill 54, California Assembly Bill 1080, the Circular Economy and Plastic Pollution Act. We'll return after a station break with my next guest, Dr. Brian Cummings, Professor and Vice Chair for Research at Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at UCI's School of Medicine, speaking to the collision course between UC System and Dutch publishing house Elsevier on matters concerning open access. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Thanks for staying tuned. You just heard a track from Comtus's Persuasion System. That's the title track that I just played for you. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Setting the stage for today's coverage about the academic work, we're going to talk with Dr. Brian Cummings, who reflexively speaks truth to power upon any occasion. All he had to do was tweet that he was over the mischief that publisher Elsevier was making, and I knew we had an interview to do. His research interests include neurotrauma, traumatic brain injury, concussion, long-term effects of repeat mild head injury, neural stem cells, translational neuroscience, bioethics, and FDA regulation. Brian completed his Bachelor's of Science in Psychology and Bachelor's of Arts in Philosophy at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana and his PhD in psychobiology at UC Irvine. It's been a long while, like eight years ago, since he last appeared. As he now returns to Ask a Leader and joins me in studio, I welcome back to the show, Brian Cummings. Thanks for coming back, Brian. Well, it's good to be here, Claudia. So, as I was saying, we are setting the stage for today's coverage about publishing academic work. The last appearance you talked about, the state's return on the investment in academic research. Let's first talk about why is it so important that science publications are available to anyone in the public? Well, the first reason is because they paid for it. Um, but 
really the second reason is particularly in this day and age of science literacy or illiteracy, um, people are trying to make decisions based on um, scientific evidence or the lack of that evidence. And if they can't have access to the primary literature, to the basic science that guides those decisions, then how can they make informed decisions? So it's really critical that uh, everybody have access to uh, all the science that's out there and let help them decide for themselves uh, about any policy issue. So we'll keep unpackaging that, but we want to know who all the players are that are involved at this point that you were tweeting about. And that, I mean, that it put it on my radar. I wasn't, and that's actually another literacy issue is where are we finding this article happening and how is this being covered in mainstream media? I, I guess it's probably not. So this is a little, little service. We're going to try to cover it here. So who the heck is Elsevier and what are they saying? What are they doing that is pretty critical to where the UC systems publishing the academic research. Well, the, the reason why I tweeted about this issue was that there's been uh, over a year of negotiations between the University of California system, the library systems of the UC and Elsevier, and trying to come up with uh, how much is the UC system going to pay for library access to the collection of Elsevier journals. And they, Elsevier has over 2,500 scientific journals. Uh, in their collection. So they are the largest scientific publisher in the world. That's huge. I'm letting that sink in. That's journals. It's huge. Wow. Is there anything that's the same size? uh, No, nobody compares. So we'll get to the antitrust issue later, but this, but I'm letting that number sink in. Okay, go ahead, Brian. Sorry. So 2,500 journals and they span from economic journals to social science journals, to basic biology journals, to medical journals, and in my field to neuroscience journals. So they're very critical. Um, They have a lot of prestigious journals in their stable, things that we would, as scientists, want to publish in and want our work to be seen. By everybody. By everybody, yes, not just our fellow scientists who have a subscription to the journal, but to the public as well. And over the last year, Elsevier and the UC system have been trying to negotiate what UC and that means Berkeley, L.A., Irvine, all of us, what are we going to pay Elsevier to allow our faculty, staff, and students to have access to journal articles in across their stable of journals? And we have been unable to come to an agreement. So I have nothing to do with those, those negotiations, but I was on the UC Irvine's Academic Senate when we voted to empower the UC system to continue their fight against Elsevier and to get more open access to the journals that we publish in. What do you mean by empower, though? I mean, just how much of a well, lever so, do you have? Well, as the, as the academic senate, and I think this happened, well, this, this vote happened across all the UC systems, and I believe every one of them was unanimous in saying that we support the UC system's efforts to require Elsevier to allow us to do open access publishing and to re- reduce our subscription costs. So I'm not sure the probably the average listener has no idea, but the UC system spends over $11 million a year in subscriptions just to Elsevier. $11 million. Uh, and $11 million transfer to a company that's average profit margin is 37%. Which is huge. So let, let's put 37% profit margin in perspective. You may have heard of this small computer company called Apple. Well, they're not Apple computer anymore. They're just Apple because they make more than computers now. But Apple actually makes something. They buy aluminum. They buy glass. They pay laborers not enough money to put the things together. And then they sell the product. 
and they make a 37% profit margin. Elsevier produces essentially nothing. Now, that sounds like a harsh statement, but they don't produce the, the clearing science. clearing they're house. They're, they're a publisher clearinghouse. And what they do is they ask me and my colleagues to review journal articles for them. They don't pay us. This is a free service that we do as part of our academic service to society. And we're actually evaluated in our promotions and our review committees as to are we reviewing journal articles for various journals. And so we provide the free review service. The scientist provides the free article. And then Elsevier packages it all together and charges on average $3,000 a publishing fee for us to publish that article. Now we've paid $3,000 or $4,000 or $5,000, depends on the journal you're submitting your article to. And when that article gets published, then the UC system has to pay another fee to allow my colleagues to read the article that I published that was generated with the tax dollars that the National Institutes of Health or the state of California provided me to do my research. So it's not really double dipping. It's more like triple dipping. Well, I, I don't know if anybody, you or your colleagues, have ever been you know, it, proximate to anybody that's at Elsevier. I just want to know how, how they can keep a s- straight face with where's their added value for such a high profit margin. If you were, let's say, at a a neuroscience congress meeting internationally you know what how would they justify that i mean just i want to know how straight stone faced they could be about oh they they would say so let's be clear they are providing value they are packaging a series of articles that have been evaluated corrected for errors edited again they have an editorial staff that will contribute comments to an article. After it's already been edited. Your uh, work's been sure. edited by I, the time they see it. By the time they see it, you know, my, my postdocs have written it and edited it. I've edited it. My, my colleagues or my spouse has read it because she's a scientist. So it's gone through a lot of review process internally. But then it gets sent out to peer reviewers that right. are anonymous. They edit. They give you comments and feedback and then you edit it one more time before a final acceptance, or hopefully a final acceptance. And at that point, Elsevier is p- providing feedback on, well, maybe you want to change the cover art, or you need to um, make a figure clearer or something. So they're providing some service, and they're certainly taking that Word document or that Pages document, and they are taking that and packaging it together into a pretty-looking PDF file, and they're spending money hosting a server that where you can download that PDF from. They are still, even in this day and age, they're still printing and packaging 10 or 20 articles together into a volume, you know, volume 12 of April of the Ex- Journal of Experimental Neurology. So there's still publishing costs and paper costs, although none of us go to the library anymore. We all do this electronically. But so I'm not saying there are no costs associated with publishing. There clearly are, and I just I don't know what those costs are per article. But what I do know is that uh, I think Apple makes too much of a profit at 37%, and I'm a stockholder in Apple. But I th- and I'm so I'm happy they're making a ton of money. But that's a huge profit margin, and Elsevier for having no production costs essentially, no raw materials um, except paper. Uh, they have a very, very low production cost, and they're still making an incredible profit margin. And the, the way they can do this is the price that they charge for subscriptions to University of Pittsburgh or Yale or Stanford or UC Irvine, those individual pricing arrangements are all secret. So we don't know what Harvard 
or MIT has negotiated with Elsevier for access to a certain journal. We just have to hope the UC librarians do a good job negotiating. So that can be found out, though. Uh, I don't know. Be. Those are those are probably non-disclosure agreements that are. You think they're to that that formally arranged? So yeah. I I just know in reading the UC librarians information releases to the faculty about what's going on in the negotiations, they've made clear that the price of a subscription to an individual journal for an academic library, that that information is not publicly disclosed. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest on Ask a Leader is Dr. Brian Cummings, professor and vice chair for research at Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at UCI's School of Medicine, speaking about the collision course between UC System and the Dutch publishing house Elsevier on matters concerning open access to academic research that's published. So do you envision, or is it already happening, where other, though, you're talking about the, the private universities may not be able to disclose what their arrangement is, but there's other sizable, not nearly as large as the University of California system, but other public universities that are joining this reindeer game? I, th I think the, well, to put it in perspective, the UC system, yeah. um, we are the largest publisher sure. of scientific information uh, in the United States. I would, I would guess that actually we're the largest in the world, but I don't know that for a fact. But I know that the UC system produces 10% of everything that's published in Elsevier. So we are a huge contributor to the articles that are in their, their publications. Wow, and they still, they're still calling it. Well, they're the so, here. So last year, just to show you the numbers, <gasps> last year UC System published fifty thousand articles, and ten thousand of which were in Elsevier journals. So that's twenty percent of the UC output went to Elsevier journals, and of all of the uh, publications in Elsevier, ten percent of the scientific papers originate from the UC System for Elsevier. So by us boycotting them. And right now we're at an impasse. I'm, as I said before, I'm not, right. I'm not in those, those negotiations, but I can already see what's happened because of the impasse is I no longer have access to any articles published in 2019 moving forward that are in Elsevier's journals. So that's a really a um, huge opportunity cost. There, we, when you were here eight years ago and we, you talked about all of these barriers to your being more productive in your lab and you know having to chase after grants to to sustain your labs and your staffs and all that kind of a thing so here's one more barrier to you just doing your job you can't you can't find out what somebody's out there published of something you you know it's coming from certain other labs around the world but it's not available to you, you or you have to pay for it or you're saying it's you see system is not doesn't have access, so there's no way that you just don't simply have a, a means of seeing what's been published by them. Um, what your colleagues around the world so are doing. That's a, that's mostly true. the The workaround, which is cumbersome, is that I can, when I find out there's an article in a journal that I don't have access to anymore, I can email the lead author or the the first author. They can answer me in a couple of days and send me a PDF of their article. But you don't, that's a drag on your time. Uh, it's, it's a significant drag on my time and theirs. And it also means, you know, the average citizen, they, they, don't, they wouldn't know to do that or they wouldn't be able to do that. So 
what, what I'm supposed to do is I'm working on a grant, I'm writing a paper, and I do a literature search, and I find right. a couple of articles that are pertinent. I can see on a public access website called PubMed. I was going to ask about PubMed, yeah. Yeah, so, so I can go to PubMed and I can see Elsevier. There's a new article. You can see it there. In well, No, I can see the abstract. Right, right, I understand. Yeah, so the problem is I can see, oh, there's an article that might be relevant to what I'm writing about right now, or it might be relevant to the experiment I'm designing exactly. right now but I can't actually read that article. You have to email the author, and the author may or may not be cooperative. Um, well, I would say, to their credit, every author, they put so much work into getting that article published that they really want everybody and their brother to read it. Okay. So they will, you know, they're busy too, so eventually they'll get around to sending you a PDF. Yes. But um, it, it isn't like I could do in 2018 where I would just click a link and download the paper immediately and start reading it. Now there's a delay of, of several days, depending on where that article was published and what country the author is in and the time zone changes and how, how timely they get around to their answering their emails. So Brian, I, I want to break down the people that are in your sphere that are using services like this. It's, it's the undergrads, it's the, the graduate students, it's the postdocs. So they're having to learn, in addition, these kinds of workarounds to uh, besides the science are just trying to master and make work toward outcomes that are meaningful so there's you're sort of having to teach them about the, this kind of additional skill oh this is the new networking skill is, is that right um yeah. how to how to get access to articles now the uc system to their credit they have sharing agreements with other universities and libraries so if i find a journal art if i find an article in an elsevier journal that i can't get access to i can fill out a form and post that to the uc library system and they can track that article down for me usually um how again, long does that take that takes several days so again it's it's um just an imagine trying to do a google search for a map and google telling you okay check your email box three days from now and we'll send that map to you I mean, it's nobody expects a three-day delay for something they're they're searching. Nobody expects exactly. that. Exactly, it, it's not a very efficient process. Let's put I mean, it that our way. Our rhythms, our our watches are set to three minutes. Three minutes to half an hour. We want to get. We want to find out. Yeah, I want. I want to click a button, and I, it needs to download in in five seconds. Well, <laughs> three, I, I was trying. Three to be minutes generous. is three minutes is too too long for me. But but so uh, that's that's the then the, make the point about how significant that delay is. Yes. And, you know, imagine, so when I'm filling out an animal protocol, I have to attest to the fact that I've done a literature search and I'm not replicating needlessly experiments that have already been done or that I've, I've taken into account new technologies that reduce the number of animals needed for an experiment. So there are real repercussions for not being able to access the latest information. That's expensive. You have to rewrite your grants to allow for that. Well, you you have to sort of adapt your work style, yeah, because you don't have access to information as quickly as it should be should be had. But I, I'd like to get back to the concept. Yes, that when I got a grant from the National Institute of Health, or I got a grant from the state of California, you know, that's taxpayer dollars that paid for the science, and we already put into that grant a publication charge, so we estimate 
you know, I, I say to the federal government, I, I'm going to do this experiment. The research costs are $100,000. The personnel to assist in that work is $50,000. The supplies are $25,000. And the publication costs are 5000 And that all gets packaged together into a grant proposal where I have a... That a, was three to five years ago. Yeah, that was exactly. Yeah. So three to five years ago, somebody agreed, okay, we'll fund this research. And I've had to put into my proposal... I'm going to be paying a $5,000 or $4,000 fee to publish the results of this experiment if, if everything turns out okay. So now, a couple of years go by, I finish the experiment and I submit that article to Elsevier, uh, which I don't do anymore. But in the old days, I yeah. would submit to Elsevier and they would uh, eventually, through the editing process, accept my paper and charge me $4,000. And then I would take that out of the grant that had been designed that way pay the 4000 and the, uh, the article get published, but the public didn't have access to it. And now anyone in the UC system doesn't have access to it in for anything from 2019 on. So does this, when I introduced you, I talked about your, your uh, translational kind of science. Does this also compound problems with tra- translational science is trying to pull together not immediately involved kinds of research. So if you, it must compound their, those difficulties to, to make your science intersect with so many other kinds of endeavors. Exactly. So I break it down for the public as there's basic science, which is we're asking questions just to understand how things work. And that's critical to our expanding our scientific knowledge. But there's also, as you mentioned, translational science, which is trying to take a basic science discovery and translate it into a product, so something that the UC system could patent and uh, a company could be spun off and and product produced, royalties gained from that that go back to the UC system, to the translational work that I do, which is trying to translate that into an FDA-approved cell therapy. And so to get FDA approval, I have to be absolutely current on the latest information out there. Um, and to give you an example, I'm, I'm negotiating right now with the state of California on a translational grant to take embryonic stem cells, make them neural stem cells, and use them to treat individuals with traumatic brain injury. So that was a $4.8 million award from the state of California that hasn't arrived yet because we're still negotiating how are we going to perform that contract. And part of the question is, when you produce these cells... Will you be able to produce them in a way that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, will accept as safe for use in man, or I should say in human? Humans. In humans. And so that question, how do you produce something in a way that the FDA will accept, is critical to know what what was the last thing they accepted and what was the science behind that thing? Because the FDA is uh, very regulated, very logical. Right, right. Uh, They're... If they did it one way for the last uh, cell therapy, they're going to base their decision for the next cell therapy on what they've done in the past. And if I can't read those articles of what they've done, what they've approved before, then I can't actually uh, complete the science as I need to do. So it could jeopardize uh, future experiments. Well, and this is all going to be a delay in where the application of that kind of therapy that ben- humans can benefit from. So it's like just it's all syncopating this kind of delay all the way through to the end result of that therapy being available to a patient. 
Exactly. Sell, uh, so wow. a delay in the pipeline, uh, increase in production costs, um, it, it's just a vicious cycle. So I know you're not an attorney, but you've never shied away from questions outside your field, Brian. So how do you think that Elsevier can, uh, how they avoid antitrust issues in this, in the in the U.S., not to mention other countries, but with our kind of codification of antitrust laws. Well, I they're, I would say they're they have a get out of jail free card in that there's more than one neuroscience journal, there's more than one basic biology journal, there's more than one genetics journal, and so so long as Elsevier doesn't own every single last neuroscience journal, and they don't, there are other publishers that publish neuroscience papers. Um, just to pick a topic I know about, Elsevier can, well, first off, they're not banning me from submitting to their journal. So as long as I play by their rules and pay their production costs, uh, I could continue to be in their system, except probably after this interview where I'll be banned for life. No. But uh, <laughs> uh, other than that, uh, they don't actually, they have a monopoly on their own publications. Right, and they, that's like a vertical, it's a vertical monopoly. The, all the processing that's leading to where somebody tries to get access to those publications. Right, but they would argue, um, and I uh, unfortunately probably have to agree with them, well, you don't have to publish in Elsevier, you can publish in Cambridge University Press, you can publish in uh, some other system, and we, we, we won't stop you from that, so... There's, they're not actually blocking my science. They're just hindering it. They're monopolizing So it. I, th- I think yeah. that, you so. know, what we need to get back to is how does the UC system, will the UC system's boycott and the loss of uh, 10% of their article submissions and the loss of the $11 million in revenue that the UC system was paying yearly to Elsevier, will that be enough to convince them to come back to the table? So as the time is drawing down, Brian, if we could sort of fuse a number of issues in one, that what your estimation of how, uh, what this outcome could be, what do, let's say, just generally consumers at large, the public at large, what's our role in advocating for a better return for the public on all this public investment in getting that research to any of these publishing platforms and how are we going to find out what happens if how how are we, where are we going to see this get covered well i don't think you're going to see this get covered in the mainstream press so uh stay tuned to kuci but um you know i could do a follow-up if we yeah actually would you get, please yeah. if we get a resolution to this what i hope is going to happen and what i've seen happening to my colleagues in my department in the stem cell center where i'm a member of is that many of us are choosing to not submit our articles to journals controlled by Elsevier anymore. Right. So a simple workaround is, okay, we just won't publish in that journal. And it used to be that, you know, in my field, for example, uh, Journal of Experimental Neurology is an important journal. It has a high impact factor, it's called. And so when, so that, that journal is a, a uh, quality journal and is respected in the field. And people want to publish in that journal because it's a respected journal. But... That impact factor is a mathematical formula for the journal, but with modern uh, data analysis, we now actually know the impact factors of individual articles and individual authors. So we no longer need to publish, in my opinion, in the most prestigious journal. We just need to publish in an open access journal things that are so well done that people cite our work. And so individual faculty can kind of take matters into their own hands and 
the better work they do and get it into open access, they will those articles will get cited because they're freely available, and then their individual impact factor will, will go up, and we don't need to worry about the specific journal. So quickly here, open access, where what is that physically? What is it's a it's an a thought, but is it also open access? Is it a platform? Or, kind or of. do we have so, to find one? Uh, it's So there are many journals. One like of them Reddit? is called uh, Public Library of Science, a PLOS. There's a PLOS One. There's PLOS Medicine. And those are open access journals. Okay. They still have a, a, so, a fee. It's a much lower fee, but they have a fee to they charge to publish the article. But the article is automatically open access. And then there's no hindrance to anybody getting a hold of it. Okay. So stay tuned. We'll find out what's developing with the the boycott. So, of course, there's so many other questions I'd love to have you talk about, Brian, but we, we kept it to this. Thank you so much for coming in to the studio with the time you didn't have today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to do it. My guest was Brian Cummings, Professor and Vice Chair for Research at Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at UCI School of Medicine, speaking about access to our own investment in research. I have an announcement for everybody. Saturday, September 21st is the Mega Citizenship Fair. UCI Law and the Public Law Center invite you to be part of the Public Law Center's Mega Citizenship Fair where you can help a qualifying person apply to be an American citizen. We've covered that with various OCORD representatives here. It's my required attendance every month, actually, just to say. Sessions will be available to volunteer throughout the day, and opportunities will be available for everyone, lawyers, students, and non-lawyers, to provide support to those in the community eligible for citizenship. Volunteers must be 16 years. Registration and training that is required will be offered at UCI Law School either on September 9th at lunchtime or September 12th in the evening, 5.30 to 7. I'll see you there, folks. That's my wrap. Next week, I'm bringing back UCI student researchers Kimberly Duong, Jian Alum. Joining them will be the new vice president of Climatepedia, Patricia Haig, to herald a huge season of climate activism upon Greta Thunberg's imminent arrival from Sweden to the shores of New York via sailboat for her much-anticipated UN address. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Mm-hmm.